Well, on my shelf at home, I have this little trinket, and it says this, just when I was getting used to yesterday, along came today. Jesus promised us in John 16, 33, that every one of his people will experience suffering. In this world, you shall have tribulation, it says. It's a painful reminder about the reality that we live in a fallen world. And it's a fallen world that is marred by sin and suffering. And yet, despite this warning, we are often surprised. We're caught off guard by suffering. Quite frankly, we expect life to be easier. We expect our relationships to never go sour, our health to be good, our finances to never falter, our workplaces to always be friendly, to never be falsely accused, to belong to a church that never disappoints, to have a family that is always there for us, and on and on and on. And yet, that isn't reality, is it? The reality is that we're constantly living in this tension. We're constantly living in this tension, this dissonance between what we expect and real life. King David, the author of the psalm, Psalm 63, was no different. He faced expectations and disappointments just the same. Most commentators would agree that, that the backdrop to this psalm is found in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through to 18, where David's son, Absalom, conspires against his father to take his throne. Quite suddenly, David, whom God had anointed as king of Israel, he had to flee. And not just from anybody but he had to flee from his own flesh and blood. Absalom had turned away many of, uh, had turned rather many of David's advisors against him. Second Samuel chapter 15, verse 12. It also says that he stole the hearts of people of Israel. Second Samuel chapter 15, verse six. And soon Absalom persuades the people to declare him to be king. Step into David's shoes for a minute. Can you imagine the betrayal, the heart-wrenching emotions that David must have felt? And how unexpected. David, this revered king, where just a few chapters ago, the people were exclaiming and declaring as one who had slain tens of thousands was now on the run back into the wilderness. And frankly, this constant dissonance, this constant tension, it wears us down. It wears us down, body and soul. Often these seasons seem to last forever. Just as one thing seems to resolve itself, we reconcile our expectations, another wave comes crashing down, we, we've seen that recently with COVID, right? We've been in this prolonged season of public health measures with expectations of things getting better. Just to have second and third waves, virus variants and such come afresh. We've also seen this with the heat waves. 
of unexpected wildfire devouring towns, of more residential school discoveries, of unexpected deaths. We've even seen this in our own church. To say that the last year and a half has been difficult is a bit of an understatement. Not only were there issues of the pandemic, but we've contended with disappointment after disappointment, unexpected disappointments, and it wears us down. One of the ways that people often deal with this dissonance is simply to say that suffering is an indication of a lack of faith. If only we had more faith, then we would not suffer as much. That somehow our level of faith and our level of suffering is tied together. You know, prosperity preachers love to use this type of false teaching. They claim that if one just has enough faith, then God promises that you will have health and wealth and all will be fine. But even in less preposterous circles, we can see this false teaching kind of creep in. How many times have you perhaps thought that you could be suffering less if you had not made so much of an idol out of your health, job, or family? Or that somehow if we had managed to make certain decisions better, that if we just made better choices, that we would not be in the place that we are today. Now, of course, there is a grain of truth to this. After all, sin and idolatry do often lead to suffering. But it is false to think that somehow, if we had just managed to conquer all our idols, that if you had just made better life choices, that your life would be free of suffering. Jesus, after all, had perfect faith. He had no idols. He made no wrong choices. And yet he endured the ultimate betrayal and the ultimate season of wilderness. The reality is that we all are going to go through seasons of wilderness, of suffering in our lives. The Bible is rife with examples. The Israelites' experience in the wilderness of Exodus. Paul's experience being shipwrecked. Whether physical or metaphorical, we live in this ongoing sense of exile because we have not yet reached our eternal, our true home. And if our perspective is not right about suffering, it will either drive us to despair or it will drive us to a deluded sense of self-generated striving effort in order to try to avoid suffering. And neither of them is resting in the grace of Jesus Christ. This morning, as we explore this biblical theme of wilderness, as we look at Psalm 63, my aim is to help you to, to have the eyes of faith so that you might see what is true beyond the suffering, beyond the pain. I want to help you see that faith can help us through the suffering amidst the wilderness. And this can be helpful in two ways. Obviously, it's helpful for the sufferer. If you're going through a season of wilderness right now, this will be hopefully an encouragement to you. 
but it can also be helpful for those who love and care for those who are suffering. How can we best walk alongside another and minister Psalm 63 to someone who is in the midst of suffering? I have a four-point outline this morning. We'll try to get through them quickly. Point number one, crying out and categorizing in the wilderness. Crying out and categorizing in the wilderness. Number two, choosing in the wilderness. Number three, clinging in the wilderness. And number four, Christ in the wilderness. Crying out, categorizing, choosing, clinging, and Christ in the wilderness. So let's begin crying out and categorizing. David begins his psalm recognizing that his deepest need is for God. Consider verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You know, David might have actually been thirsty. The narrative in 2 Samuel tells us that not only was he wandering in the wilderness, he went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. He was barefoot. He had his head covered, coupled with the backstory of deep betrayal. You can just imagine. You can just sense the grief, the emotional and the physical exhaustion. The beginning of the psalm tells us more. It's a dry and weary land where there is no water. And yet David turns the honest, descriptive, vivid imagery of his physical and emotional pains to the spiritual. My soul thirsts for you. Then, he says, my flesh faints for you. I seek you. You see, David recognizes that his deepest need isn't for water even though he is desperately thirsty. It is for God whom he earnestly seeks. David had confidence that God would satisfy his deepest need. But David is also not stoic. He fully recognized that we are embodied souls, that we are, we are flesh and blood, and material and immaterial. And often it is our bodies that will feel the pain of suffering more immediately than our souls. And so he articulates his plea about his whole being with his whole being. One of the many ways that I have found helpful in walking alongside sufferers is to simply have them articulate their suffering. Take stock of your suffering. Pour out your deepest heartaches, your brokenness in honest speech. What brought you to this wilderness? What's it like to be here? What are your thoughts, your emotions, your actions? What does the physical pain feel like right now? What feels threatening in this moment? Be as descriptive as possible. Consider how David described those that threatened him in verse 10. He used very 
descriptive words, they shall be a portion for jackals. Categorize your suffering. Find metaphors. Name your fears and your feelings. Name your pains. And most importantly, be precise. Why is this important? Well, secular therapies would have us think that this is some sort of catharsis or venting or getting it off your chest. Some might say that New Age spirituality would argue that doing so appeals to the universe in hopes that the cosmic tides of karma might be turned. But for Christians, for believers in Jesus Christ, there is much more, this is much more than venting or cosmic karma correction. As Christians, we don't pour out our hearts without hope. We pour out our, hope, our hearts because we know that there is a hope, and that hope is personal. Look at verse 1 again. Notice how David personalizes his plea. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You see, articulating in precise, personal terms helps us to pinpoint how the mercies of Christ can come to bear upon our wilderness Articulating helps to categorize. It helps us to consider responsibilities. For example, is this suffering caused by my personal sin? Or is it caused by somebody else's sin toward me? Or is it caused by Adam and Eve's sin? In other words, just the reality of living in a fallen world. And do you see even just in these broad categories of identifying and and categorizing that I just did it, it points to how Christ has provided us with hope in different ways. If the suffering, for instance, is caused by my direct sin, my personal sin, I can repent, for Christ's blood has atoned for my sin. And I can trust him knowing that I no longer face condemnation because of it. If suffering is caused by somebody else's sin, I can lovingly seek reconciliation with that person, knowing that Christ has reconciled us to himself, and so we can do likewise. And if that suffering is caused by Adam's sin, as in we live in a fallen world, we can lament knowing that Jesus weeps along with us and that he's bringing us one day closer to eternity with him. See how just categorizing it points us to the mercies of Christ. We look next at choosing in the wilderness, point number two. When we face times of suffering in wilderness, we have a choice. And the choice, ultimately, is who to trust and who to submit to. David continues with a deliberate choice to trust God in the wilderness. He considers reasons why he can trust God, and he names them. Just notice the pivot from verses 1 through to 2. 
verse 1, end of verse 1, it says, As in a dry and weary land where there's no water, so, there was the pivot, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David doesn't place his hope in God, removing him from the wilderness. The psalm doesn't read, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water, so send me buckets of water and get me the heck out of here. That's not what it says. Instead, we can imagine, perhaps, he's walking up away from the city of Jerusalem. And he's looking back, just for a moment, to the city that he just fled. Maybe he's thinking about the Ark of the Covenant that he just asked uh, the people to send back into the city. And he deliberately considers and he names reasons why he can trust God amidst the wilderness. Even though he's physically tired, he's in physical danger. His son is after him with swords and clubs. He recognizes that it is as much a spiritual battle as it is a physical one. You know, this isn't a game of mind over matter. That's not what I'm saying. It is instead recognizing that the battle against sin and against suffering is an eternal battle for which Christ has already won the victory. And so the conscious choice is one of standing firm in the promises of God and engaging in spiritual warfare. Even though David faced great physical danger and was, in a sense, engaged in physical warfare, his primary focus remained engaged in the spiritual battle, the fight for faith. And so he set his heart and his mind to recall in detail the character, the promises, the presence, the provisions of God. And he does so in two ways, two distinct ways. He looks first at the eternal ways, and then he looks at personal ways. So first, the eternal ways. Consider verse 3. It says, because... Your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Notice how he names God's character of love. He knows that God's love is unchanging. That it is the greater thing, even more so than life. Absalom, his son, is seeking his life, and yet David's confidence is that God's love is better than even keeping his life. You know, sometimes as Christians, these words are so familiar to us, right? They're so familiar that we sing and we proclaim this truth often, and it just rolls off our lips. They are almost, they've almost become words devoid of their meaning. But have you actually paused to think about that for a moment? God's steadfast love, God's steadfast love for us is greater even than life itself. His love is more precious and valuable than life. We know this to be true. I mean, after all, God... God's love sent his only son to die for us. 
Even in that, in the gospel story, we know that his love is greater than life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 through 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation, to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, our temptation is to look and judge God's love through the lens of our circumstances. But David here reminds us that we are to look at our circumstances through the lens of God's love, which is greater than life and is ultimately manifested in his son Jesus. In this sense, he is certain, David is certain, that because of God's steadfast love, God will provide the living water and the bread, the bread of life that sustains all of God's children. He says in verse 5, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. You know, I've always found this phrase to be quite funny. I mean, David's on the run. What fat? What rich food? I've been camping. There's no fat and rich food. Yet he contrasts what he lacks physically at the moment with the faith-filled abundance that he knows that he has in God. And so can we. In fact, we have an advantage because we look back to the cross, whereas David looked forward. We know and are reminded each week through communion, for instance, that he is indeed the living water and the bread of life. That because his body has been given for us and his blood shed for us, that one day we will feast with him in heaven. In the midst of hardship, in the midst of the wilderness, of confusing times, of discouragement, let the specifics of what we seem to lack in our circumstances dictate and drive us to remember the specifics of what we have in Jesus Christ. Let the specifics of what we seem to lack in our circumstances drive us to remember the specifics of what we have in Christ. David continues to remember the eternal promises of God. For instance, in verses 9 through 10, David trusts that God will deal justly with those that, uh, that are against him, that he'll deal justly with his enemies. He trusts that evildoers will have the ult- won't have the ultimate say over his life. He knows that whether, we, whether in life or in death, whether we are here on earth or we are at home with Jesus, we are in God's hands, that God is sovereign over all of that, and that he loves us. But David does not only remember God's eternal promises. He also recounts how God has been faithful to him personally in his life. Consider verses 6 through 7. It says this, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, 
For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. While the psalm isn't specific about what things that David meditates upon when he's lying on his bed, it's clear that David isn't just clinging onto God's faithfulness and God's love in the abstract, in general. He's thinking about God's faithfulness to him personally because he is thinking about the time that God, um, that God came through for him in his life. Maybe he's thinking about the time when he conquered the Philistines, when he, when he was able to kill the giant Goliath with just a slingshot and a smooth stone. Or perhaps the times when God spared him from King Saul's murderous intents. Or even when God led him to genuine repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. The point is that David doesn't just remember God's eternal promises in this kind of abstract way. They are lived experiences, lived testimony. And in this, we can find much application in our lives and those we love. Are you able to recall specific ways in which God has been faithful to you and demonstrated his love to you? Those of you that have been to my house will know that it is a rather homey and hospitable place, but it is also quite cluttered. Mary Kondo would probably have a fit if she came to my house. Now, part of that is because I've lived there for many years. I love books. I have two kids and, frankly, not a whole ton of space. Uh, and a general disposition toward things coming in faster than they go out. But part of this is also because there are things in my home, there are things in my home that specifically remind me of God's faithfulness during difficult seasons. I have mementos, trinkets, if you will. I have a collection of cards, for instance, that hangs on my wall that reminds me of God's people, of his means of grace to me and my family and the love of Christ expressed through his body. On my wall hangs a marriage and peacemaking covenant that I signed on my wedding day almost 19 years ago reminding me of the faithfulness of God in giving me a wife who fears the Lord. Particularly significant if you know some of my family story. In biblical times, these were often referred to as Ebenezers. The Israelites would stack stones in places, okay, in certain places as a tangible reminder of God's faithfulness to them in that place at that time. So let me ask you, what about you? What practical ways of remembering God's character, provisions, his personal faithfulness to you, do you have? Mementos are one way. Here are some other ways. Consider journaling, detailing what God has done. Or another way is simply to keep a, a running list, a, a running practical list of God's promises as you read and encounter God in the Bible. You know that I'm in counseling, so oftentimes I'll tell counselees to do this. Ask yourself, what, what have you found helpful 
and encouraging in Scripture lately? If you found something helpful, write it down. And then make the discipline of writing these things down so that the next time you encounter wilderness, you make a conscious choice to trust. You have at your fingertips the reminders of why he is so trustworthy. Which brings us to the third point. Cling to God in the wilderness. Cling to God in the wilderness. Psalm 63.8 tells of David's response after he cried out to him. He chose to trust. He chose to submit to God. He clung on to God as he worshipped him. Verse 8 says this, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David could have clung to many things, frankly. He was a man of many talents. He could have clung to his experience. He had a lot of experience as a shepherd, as a, as a king, as a musician, as a, an army uh, general. He could have clung to the sizable army that he had. He could have clung to the to the hope of one day returning to this comfortable palace that he dwelt in. He could have clung to nothing, giving himself over to despair and defeat. No, he didn't do any of that. Instead, he clung on to God, trusting in who God is. Trusting in God's right hand to uphold him even if that did not mean deliverance and rescue, even if it meant that he would be killed. Sometimes God doesn't bring deliverance and rescue, at least not in the way that we think, that we would like. And even in David's story, he, for instance, wished that God would spare Absalom's life, despite his treason. And yet that didn't happen. But David does not cling onto the false hope in circumstances, he clings to God. Active faith seeks out. It clings onto God. It clings onto the only one who can uphold us even when life is filled with pain and disappointments and uncertainty. He is the only one that can resolve this constant dissonance that we feel between what we expect and reality. One good way to test our resolve of this is to identify the things that we might be clinging on to instead of God. Ask yourself or ask the one whom you love and are caring for, what would you change about your circumstances right now that would bring relief? What would change? What would you change if you could? What do you pray about most when life is difficult? Who or what brings you comfort when you are facing hardships? Who is your hope? Whom do you trust? And if we're really honest, myself included, those answers aren't always God. Consider some things that we might be tempted to cling on to instead. Our health, our finances, 
our jobs, our kids, our spouse, our reputation and public image, our escapes from pain, even our rule-keeping. Of course, none of those things lead us to the God who upholds us, does it? And so cling on to him, submit to him in the wilderness. Let me conclude with the last point, Christ in the wilderness. I began with a passing reference to John 16, 33, where Jesus promised us tribulation. But what I didn't read you is the whole of John 16, 33. Jesus said this, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, Jesus said, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, David wasn't the only one who experienced wilderness. You're not the only one that has experienced wilderness, even though it seems like that sometimes. Christ experienced it. And he experienced it to the full. He bore our sins on the cross. Not only did he experience wilderness when he was tempted by Satan for 40 days, in the literal wilderness early in his ministry, but he experienced wilderness in the Garden of Gethsemane as he wrestled with, as he sweated drops of blood knowing what was ahead. He too cried out to God. He too articulated his thoughts, his emotions, his desires. He was human. He is human. He even asked for a change in circumstances. And sometimes it is okay to pray that. But in the end, in a faith-filled choice to cling to the Lord, he submitted to God's will. And in his one submission, he sealed and forever changed the way that we read and pray Psalm 63. You see, the lesson of Psalm 63 in light of Jesus Christ is that we can place our hope firmly in a person and not in circumstances. And that person, Jesus, indeed, has overcome the world. Not just because he is the Son of God, but because he himself was subjected to being a human in a fallen world. Hebrews 4 Verses 15 through 16 reminds us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How will you respond the next time you are faced with wilderness? How will you help someone that you love and care about through a season of suffering? Will you respond in faith? <laughs>